in a sea of red. The electoral map presents a distorted picture belying where most of the country's population lives and where the most privation occurs. Welcome to Interchange, I'm Doug Storm. You're listening to Inner City Blues by Marvin Gaye. A survey of the landscape in the wake of Donald Trump's election reveals that America's urban-rural drift has cemented into a chasm. Though commonly conflated with only economic elites, those blue dots contain within them more divisions and real socioeconomic hardship. Cities abused or ignored by governments at all levels, often including the suburbs directly surrounding them. Tonight, scapegoating our cities with guest Bill Goldsmith, Professor Emeritus in the Department of City and Regional Planning at Cornell University, who has studied the ways in which cities are always the first to be blamed and the last to be helped. He's the author of Saving Our Cities, a progressive plan to transform urban America. While Red America took to Trump's occasional rants against a rigged economy, Goldsmith illustrates the ways in which cities have been hemmed in by unfair policies, emaciated by budget cuts, and so disparaged and stigmatized that the word urban, which simply means city life, began to assume a racist caste. He argues that to make America great again is to make cities, where most Americans actually live, healthy again. And now, scapegoating our cities with Bill Goldsmith on Interchange. Bill Goldsmith, welcome to Interchange. I'm delighted to be with you. Now, your new book, published by Cornell University Press, is called Saving Our Cities, A Progressive Plan to Transform Urban America. In it, you argue that to transform urban America is to transform America. Can you give us a a broad view of what you mean by that? Sure. Let me start with just some very simple statistics. Uh, If you take metropolitan areas larger than 200,000, which is not so big, there are lots and lots and lots of them, it adds up to more than four-fifths of the total population in the United States. So if we consider cities as metropolises, uh, we have uh, the vast majority of population in the country, contrary to much that's been said since the election. Uh, on top of that, uh, in nearly each of these metro areas, the central city is crucial uh, to the health of the economy. Lots and lots of studies have been done by lots and lots of economists and other social scientists, left, right, and center, and they all agree that without strong central city economy, the metropolis is almost always in trouble, so that city failures weaken whole metropolitan areas. Uh, My argument in this book, sort of backing it up, is that revived cities will make national economies make our national economy more productive. Uh, It'll make the environment better protected and the citizenry better educated, uh, the society more uh, well sensitive, reflective, more humane. So I really uh, think the evidence is there that fixing our cities will constitute fixing America. 
America. Mm. That's a tough argument to make today after this election. <laughs> right. So, in some ways, I think it maybe is even a stronger argument today than it was mm. a day and a half ago. And that, that was a statistic that struck me, and it's not a strange thing. When you look at electoral, electoral maps and you see uh, sort of vast swaths of the country that are, are sort of empty of population, and then those dense population um, areas that tend to be blue on those electoral maps, swallowed by red uh, around them as well. It's it sort of a, a immediately gives an illustration of what you're talking about. These places that are, I guess, organized in a particular way or have a particular sense of what it means to live as a citizen in a kind of place, a geography, and then to be sort of enveloped by people who have different ideas about what it means to live in a kind of geography. Yeah, yeah, that, that's right. Uh, actually, the, th- those maps are striking, all that red and these blue spots. Mm-hmm. I certainly agree. Um, and as you said, a lot of those red areas uh, are devoid of population. So the map, in a sense, sort of misrepresents it. Right, right. All of America's red. When in fact, mm-hmm. nearly all of America lives in those tight little blue clumps. Um, they're not uh, blue enough to have elected uh, Hillary Clinton. But actually, uh, if you look at it, it's sort of 50 50. Mm. And uh, in fact, she got a few more votes than he got. And uh, if you look at last two election cycles, roughly half of the potentially eligible citizenry doesn't vote. So what it really is, is a quarter and a quarter. So Obama won with 26 or 27 percent of the vote against his opponents who had 24 or 25 percent of the vote. The other half didn't vote. Mm. And that's um, slightly less true this time, but it's still true. So um, we get uh, tremendous distortions of reality uh, from these statistics, and it's really it's really important to look beneath it. I'm sure everybody's going to be doing that for a long time, um, at least for the next several months or years even, to yeah. figure out what happened with this election. Right. Let's stay at that top level for a second, because I think you do hint at it at least that uh, this has always been kind of a, a push-pull with cities and the city and the, and the country, right? But uh, the you know the position that uh, there are kinds of people that live in cities and kinds of people that live in the country, and these don't mix in some sense. And and it was interesting to think about this in terms of how we continue to frame it, right? The American myth is is a westernized myth, but it's about going west. It's about individualism. It's about taking off uh, and taking care of yourself and all these kinds of things. It's a an argument against the city in itself, where where you rely on others, where you have to sort of rely on structures of municipal governance. So you are interdependent in cities, and this is almost exactly against the American myth. Yeah, yeah, no, and it's a very strong American myth, and it's it's quite explicitly an anti-American myth. Uh, there was a book published, I think, nineteen sixty, sixty-one, sixty-two by a couple named Morton and Lucia White called The Intellectual Versus the City. Of course, Thomas Jefferson um, is a big figure there. Mm. Uh, So there's this fight, uh, again, uh, between Hamilton and, if you wish, and and Jefferson, one of them city-oriented, one of them rural-oriented. Then it was a a plausible case you could make that, in fact, it was a rural nation. But it's no longer plausible. It's not. uh, None of us is uh, independent. It's simply not possible to be freed uh, from dependence on other people. That's sort of a 
crazy myth. People may feel like they still want to be independent like that, but it just isn't possible in this world we live in. Right. Well, you point to the fact, uh, I think it is an uh, an ideological divide, right, in some sense. But there's the fact that, as you say, uh, there's been a tough uh, life for a lot of people. The last 40, 45 years has seen a real turn in the economic uh, position of most of America. And, uh, you know, while the richer, the wealthy get wealthier, the, the, you know, the middle class gets poorer, the, I guess, the mythic middle class in some sense gets poorer, the the buffer between wealth and poor, uh, the middle class has has gone away as well, but still imagines itself there. All the the people who have lost jobs in manufacturing, all these things are, are have combined to make sort of that perfect storm of uh, resentment, fear. Um, the precariat, you know, has has no sense that what might have been a democratic stronghold, in a sense, workers and and the ability to um, I don't know, vote against uh, wealth in some sense has gone away. The Democrats are a party of wealth, just like Republicans are. So what's left? And it turns out to be a a strange fella. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I completely agree with you. Um, the Democrats just left this enormous chunk of the populace uh, behind. And it, things are tougher in the last 40 years. You used to be able to get a job in a factory. Uh, you didn't even have to get out of high school, but certainly if you got out of high school, you get a job right away in a factory. Uh, and you didn't have to be super literate. You just had to show up for work and work hard. Mm-hmm. Um, you didn't have to have uh, tremendously extensive skills. You could learn them on the job, and you can get a job, and you could be paid well. Uh, uh, after World War II, you could buy a suburban house um, if you were white, and you could um, do fairly well in in a lot of the big industrial centers, even if you were black or Hispanic and you got a factory job. You could live fairly well. You could have a house. You could probably, if you wanted, send your kids on to uh, a public college with virtually no tuition. Mm-hmm. Um, you could, uh, you know, have a house and a boat even, <laughs> uh, a couple of cars, and that's all gone away. Now you can't get a job. Uh, certainly without a high school education, you can't get a decent-paying job, and you almost can't do it uh, without uh, some college education. And yet, you know, three-quarters of the population, 70% of the population, doesn't get a four-year college degree. So we're talking about leaving behind just a vast proportion of the U.S. population. I'm Doug Storm, and you're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Scapegoating Our Cities with Bill Goldsmith, Professor Emeritus of City and Regional Planning at Cornell University. Well, it's an unfortunate thing that we never confront the the ethical aspects of these things, right? It's it's an ethical conundrum to me that, you know, we we continue to sort of have an immoral economic structure that people hold up as as the best one there ever was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And in the last um, maybe 15, 20 years, in some ways, it's gotten uh, even worse. You know, um, in the middle of the 20th century, there was a Supreme Court justice named Louis Brandeis. Mm -hmm. And in 1941, he said this. He said, we may have democracy, or we may have wealth concentrated in the hands of a few, but we cannot have both. Right. Well, I think that's what the Wall Street 1%, 99% uh, 
discussion was about. Mm-hmm. It's changed our language. It allowed Bernie Sanders to practically get the nomination of one of the major parties. Uh, who knows? Maybe right. he would have won the election. Um, but it's still true. And um, we operate as though we, <laughs> right. the establishment right. that runs the country, right. uh, uh, which is the Senate, the House of Representatives, the Supreme Court, uh, much of the uh, sort of bureaucracy controlled by the White House, we operate as though that's not true. Right. So we let that inequality just expand, 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 and uh, we seem to serve with our laws that 1% or even the one-tenth of 1% and their banks and their corporations right. say they probably pretty effectively buy off the next 10 or 15%. Yeah. They pay us enough to keep us well-fed and happy and quiet. Um, I mean that's kind of a cynical view of it. I don't think it's it's I don't think it's so far off. That. No, I don't I don't think so either, but I I take the same view. So <laughs> so um well let's uh before I I just you keep talking to you about what what the world is like I suppose, but well, let's get to uh what we're talking about in this book though in specifics. Um but first uh let's talk a little bit about the I guess the negativity around the term urban uh which I think is important as well. It's always been kind of a pejorative in some sense, right? Uh, well, no, it hasn't always. Not always, no, yeah. But it's grown into a, a sort of a racialized mm-hmm. sort of uh, over the last, um, what do we say, uh, 30 years, I guess. So that, um, you know, and, and well, one of my one of my students, I, I noted this in the book, one of my students um, wrote at one point that, um, that he wrote about, or she wrote about urban cities. <laughs> I thought, oh, that's a funny thing. What does is, what is urban cities really mean? Mm-hmm. What are they talking about when they say urban cities? It doesn't make any sense. I mean, cities are urban places, so I didn't quite get what's going on. So I, I looked and I scrounged through the literature, and I found that there's all kinds of stuff about um, very negative views uh, of cities. So we have urban music. Well, what urban music means really is music played by uh, pretty much African Americans, mm-hmm. also uh, immigrants or Latinos. We have urban clothing, urban dress. Um, it's black clothing. It's not urban clothing. Mm-hmm. It's black and Hispanic clothing. Um, we have all kinds of things we call urban, and we use it as a, as a way of talking about cities and talking about poor people who live in cities without being as nasty as we really feel. Right, but you're, you you mentioned this as a way, you know, we racialize the city. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we really racialize the city, and we racialize discussions of the city. Of course, this is uh, double-edged, because we really racialize the cities with uh, mainly post-World War II federal urban policy, mm. the Federal Housing Administration, which did not allow integrated suburbs, didn't allow integrated developments. When developers went to banks to get loans, they wanted guarantees from the FHA uh, so that the loans were sure to be paid back. And FHA provided these very, very inexpensively. They actually got all their money back with the premiums, so it didn't cost the feds anything. But what it did say was no mortgage loan guarantees to banks unless an area was all of one ethnicity. Well, the only ethnicity, that's what we call it, that could afford these areas uh, was the white ethnicity. Mm-hmm. And so suburbs were all white, not simply because of preferences of residents, but also because of um, sort of built-in legal structures that didn't allow anybody else to get there. 
Yeah. Uh, so that you, you, you simply could not move into a suburban area uh, unless it was all of one race, which in effect meant all white. Right. And um, that really sort of wiped out any chance for blacks, Hispanics, and many other uh, persons who were recent immigrants to cash in on the enormous capital accumulation for individual families that occurred entirely on the basis of home values increasing hmm. in the post-war era. So here we're talking about, for each family, something like, uh, in today's terms, hundred or even a couple of hundred thousand dollars of assets that um, minority families couldn't get. Hmm. And so it was a big, big program. And, and, and for the most part, uh, city residents couldn't get, especially the majorities who lived in relatively low-income parts of the city, which is the majority of every city, uh, they simply couldn't cash in on these. Uh, it was also, uh, I mean, money was transferred in lots of ways that way. We racialized the cities uh, by doing that, and then we heaved tons of subsidies on the people who lived uh, in the white areas and denied those subsidies to people who lived in the Hispanic and black areas. I mean, the evidence about this is just absolutely overwhelming. It's actually embarrassing to read, um, but it's there. It's our history. So we racialized the cities first de facto, and now we're racializing them, um, or de facto de jure. We did it by law and mm -hmm. just by practices, real estate practices. And now um, we've come to talk about cities um, actually in not entirely inaccurate terms, but we've sort of racialized the whole conversation. So, yeah, urban means urban means despised black and Hispanic in, in much of our language. It's time for a break. You're listening to The Pretenders. My city was gone. More with Bill Goldsmith and scapegoating our cities when Interchange returns. Back to Interchange. Tonight, Scapegoating Our Cities with Bill Goldsmith, Professor Emeritus at Cornell and author of Saving Our Cities, a progressive plan to transform urban America. In our next segment, we look at some specific school, fiscal, and tax policies as avenues for abuse by state, federal, and suburban governments, and the ways in which politicians moralize their actions by painting cities as irredeemable problems and responsible for their own mistreatment. Taking center stage is Detroit.
crumbling to ruin under three decades of economic hostility from the state of Michigan, justified by open hatred of the city, including a suburban politician invoking Native American-style genocide as his preferred policy for the citizens of Detroit. You have the sense that we're walking, um, continuing to walk in a racist nation that all of these problems that we talk about facing now, uh, scarcity, austerity, poor schools, that we have targets for our vitriol against the failing America. And it's all a created space. You know, it's all a product of policies that were intentionally enacted. Uh, yeah, um yeah, I might quibble a tiny bit. <laughs> okay, go go ahead. But 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 I shouldn't because I might have said it myself. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean some of these things. I don't actually think anybody set out to say, okay, we're going to create a system in which we have donuts. In the middle of the hole will be poor people of color, and on the outside will be well-off people, or at least almost well-off people who are white. I don't think anybody set out to do that. What they did was they said, well, if our bank uh, guarantees uh, mortgages in this area, well, you know, the values might drop, so we might lose money. Or well-organized suburbanites demanded <laughs> that their representatives in Congress pass laws that would benefit them by giving them huge uh, tax deductions mm -hmm. for their interest on their mortgage payments, which, by the way, adds up to $100 billion every year. Yeah. That's a federal expenditure. We don't call it that. Economists do call it a tax expenditure. But uh, congressmen, <laughs> they don't call it that. They mm -hmm. say, no, 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 that's just, that's just well, we, don't, we, we shouldn't collect money from these people. Well, those are taxes that are owed and not paid. Um, so, yeah, yeah, we, we built this. Um, <laughs> we built um, it, that's right. We built it. We should, we should say it, right? Potentially. We built it. So the idea, I hope, is that there's a way to, to take out some of this brick by brick, I, I guess. There's, uh, the, what you focus on four areas in the book. You say austerity, schools, food, and drugs. These are uh, areas that there are definite policies that have been in place that have sort of been obstacles to fixing things or obstacles to having proper running cities as well. And you talk about defensive reform in these areas as well. Do you want to walk through uh, what you mean by each of these, I guess, uh, in uh, sketch them at least, or maybe we can dive into some specifics as we go? No, I'd, I'd love to sketch them. You're sure. Right. There are four things I talk about. Schools. We all know a lot about schools because we all went to school, so we're all experts in a way. It's true. Uh, about food and nutrition. Third, uh, about drugs. And there I focus not on the use of drugs, not the consumption of drugs, but on the drug war. And then sort of overriding it all, what do we call it, uh, austerity or uh, inequality, uh, budget cutting, uh, that kind of stuff. So um, how to talk about this most sensibly? Well, let, me, let me try to put it into, into the context. Something that the mayor of Cleveland said a century ago, his name was Tom Johnson, he was mayor from 1901 to 1909, part of the progressive movement. And he said, you know, it's really noble to rescue drowning people by pulling them out of the river. But wouldn't it be more sensible to stop other people from throwing them in upstream? That's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> uh, a heck of a good idea. Mm -hmm. And so I began to think about this with respect to cities, uh, actually, uh, quite a while ago. I'd, I'd grown up in a city where the federal government was building highways that the city opposed that were very destructive to the city itself, no, but the federal 
and state sort of highway bureaucracy, mm-hmm. uh, just insisted on building these. The city refused to build the last part of it. And then uh, they stood uh, only semi-used and hated by practically everyone um, for, well, more than 40 years until the World Series earthquake um, toppled them. This is San Francisco. Mm. And uh, the highway guys at federal and state level wanted to pave the whole city. And the city residents said, no, no, we don't want that. We don't want that. We won't pay our 2%. So they never got quite finished, but almost. Uh, and then they fell down. Uh, we were able to tear them down because of the earthquake. Um, I thought, well, what other kinds of things are done from the outside? So I came up with these four answers for all of schools, food, drug war, and austerity. And I realized that um, we were um, sort of ruining our cities because we were allowing outside forces to come in and and damage them terribly. So the biggest one, the sort of overall one, not necessarily the most important one, is this austerity. So Willie Sutton, the great bank robber, 20th century, when when asked why he robbed banks, what's he say? He says, well, because that's where the money is. (laughs) Well, when the Congress decided it had to cut taxes for the wealthy and for corporations, about 1970, let's and certainly we all know about 1980, the election of Ronald Reagan. Mm-hmm. We get this tremendous budget cutting. They couldn't cut the farm subsidies because the farm lobby was very powerful. They couldn't cut uh, defense expenditures because they didn't want to. <laughs> right. Couldn't cut, I mean, a lot of businesses make a lot of money yeah. out of defense expenditures. Yeah. However you feel about the need for making right. right. war on defense, there's a lot of money there. Uh Third, they, they they tried, but they couldn't cut Social Security because of the Gray Panthers. Mm-hmm. That's you know they fought back against Reagan, who was graying himself and had some sympathy. So um, that stopped. So where are they going to go for the money? Well, the one other place where lots and lots and lots and lots of money was spent, especially from the buildup that comes all the way from from Roosevelt through Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, uh, especially, but also um, through the Nixon presidency. This is enormous buildup of federal expenditures on cities. I mean, after all, that's where most of the money comes from, so a lot of the money should have gone back, and it did go back. And the Congress saw this as an opportunity, like Willie Sutton, robbing banks because that's where the money was, cutting city expenditures because that's where the money was. So they did that. But it turned out that they also made a lot of political capital by doing that. Because as they cut funding to cities, then the cities looked worse and worse and worse. As the cities looked worse, they were able to say, look, why should we throw money at a bad problem? Right, right. It's not doing any good. So it was this circular self-reinforcing problem that, yeah. just, that just drove things down. We were able to moralize it, too. That's right. Yeah. They moralized yeah. it. They got votes for it. Uh, they ignored the cities. They put them aside. And then we got, um, you know, by 2013, we have 14 municipalities that had filed bankruptcy since 2008. This is despite lots of states not even permitting cities to go bankrupt. Mm-hmm. And so you ask why. Um, well, as you've been suggesting, we've driven cities off the political radar. We abuse them. We mistreat them like despised stepchildren. We blame them, and we don't help them. Uh, look, l- let me quote one guy who I just love. I've never met him. But for 20 years, he's been the chief executive of Oakland County, mm-hmm. it's a suburb outside Detroit. And in 2014, he said he really likes high fences. Uh, let's see. I-, I can quote him from page four in my book. It's quite remarkable. He says, what we're going to do is turn Detroit into an Indian reservation. 
where we herd all the Indians into the city, build a fence around it, and then throw in the blankets and corn. It's, it's shock, shock. Unbelievable. <laughs> this is a guy who's been re-elected and re-elected and re-elected. His county, just on the edge of, of the city of Detroit, has 1.2 million people. Yeah. He's able to talk openly like that. Yeah. Um, but if we look at Detroit from a different perspective, and we look at what Robert Klein, who was a Michigan State treasurer, and before that he was a tax commissioner, he says, no, no, Detroit went into bankruptcy because of three decades of the state of Michigan hostility. Right. Uh, he, he lists a bunch of options not taken. Revenue sharing to make up for income tax losses, they could have done that, they didn't. Regional districts, which lots of places have, for fire and police, uh, they didn't apply for federal funding, which was available for mass transit for the city. Uh, they didn't establish uh, what a lot of places have, which is residency requirements for city workers. Hmm. They didn't do tax-based sharing or regional government. Uh, they didn't even allow more time for the emergency managers to fix things. Instead, mm-hmm. state, now this is not federal, but state-level politicians in Michigan chose to blame Detroit's problems on corruption, unions, and overly generous pension benefits. But none of them, according to the former tax director and state treasurer, none of these was the primary cause of bankruptcy. So we get told a story that's just not true as we're beating up on these cities. So I'm saying this stuff comes from the outside. Mm. One culprit is the federal tax-cutting legislators who want to cut things away and cut things away and cut things away. Um, a, a, A second culprit for the cities, and this has to do with schools, is suburbs, where schools are quite successful, and they end up being sort of like privatized public enterprises. What do I mean by privatizing the school? Well, who gets to go to a suburban school? A child whose parents either own property or sometimes rent property in the school district. Who gets to do that? People with enough money to do it, and people who earlier weren't racially prohibited. They're not anymore. Um, They can be made uncomfortable, but they can buy in anyway. So middle-class black people can buy into good suburban schools, and they do. But if you don't have the money, you can't buy in. Well, that's sort of the way we buy food, the way we buy furniture, the way we go to the movies. You don't have the money, you don't go. So if you can't pay for it, you can't go to the public school. We are, as far as I know, the only modern industrial democracy in the world that runs our schools that way. It's not true in France. It's not true in Germany. certainly not true in Scandinavia or the Netherlands. It's not true even in England on Canada, where school districts are much larger, spread out much further, where the resources for schooling are much more nationalized, and where uh, things are much, much more equal. Uh, so uh, there, uh, that, that's a very different uh, set of obstacles sort of coming downstream at the cities. Right. I'm Doug Storm, and you're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Scapegoating Our Cities with Bill Goldsmith, Professor Emeritus of City and Regional Planning at Cornell University. First, let me, let me, let me walk back into that space of uh, where a, a person would say that they wanted to, for the most part, kill off a population by rounding them up and putting them in a city and... Um, and you know, this is the perspective that we have to always sort of keep in the back of our, 
our heads too, right? Is that these, as we said already, these are sort of um, ways in which we formed the country we live in. We formed our cities. We formed a state organizations that kind of effectively manipulate cities in this way as well so that, again, those rural and uh, suburban areas can survive in, in a nice way. Uh, and the rest of it seems entirely racialized, as you said before, in a way that's just, again, shocking. And we continue to create that uh, division wherein we blame uh, a racial population for failing while being sure that we have our hands around their necks. The truth is a very scary one. But I wanted to focus on schools in particular because it's kind of a fulcrum point for a lot of these particular issues, right? Let's try to focus on how schools in cities might be a good place to focus uh, any kind of reform. Yeah, I think there are two examples uh, of sort of experiments that illustrate the opportunities that we ought to be able to seize. Uh, whether we seize them or not depends on a whole lot of complicated political issues, and it doesn't sound like we're going to do much in the next four years, but, but who knows. There are two things that happen in schools that indicate that there's enormous energy from nearly everyone for solving the school problems. We just haven't found the way. Uh, one is that... Um, there are special schools within nearly all public school systems. They're most often called magnet schools, mm -hmm. schools that focus on theater, on music, uh, even on athletics, uh, on science, on uh, literature. Uh, some of the most famous ones, of course, are very well-known, Boston Latin, Lowell High School in San Francisco, uh, Bronx School of Science. Uh, you know, they're in cities all over the country um, where uh, they'll take a particular school, and they'll say, okay, you can't get it in this school unless you either test well uh, or perform well, and, and we'll narrow down the population that gets to go to that school, and we'll provide really extraordinary uh, educational experience. Uh, those of us who have served on college admissions committees see kids who come from these schools, and they're unbelievably well-prepared. Mm -hmm. uh, Bill, let me, let me interrupt. Are those massively expensive things, magnet schools? No, they're expensive. Yeah. But they're not massively expensive. Well, it's just always surprised me, right? You you think it it also creates that sense of particular uh, unique qualities one has to have to go into a magnet school, rather than you know saying let's have this kind of education as part of how everybody gets oh, to go to school. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. absolutely. But the fact that everybody wants to get their kids into it mm -hmm. <laughs> tells you every parent is interested in having that kind of education son or daughter yeah. get a good education right, right. and they'll go to a great extent to try to get them into that and yeah yeah you're absolutely right no what it does it ends up excluding the vast majority no question about that and it has a bunch of other negative consequences uh, such as uh, the school district paying tremendous attention to those schools and ignoring the other schools it also pulls away the most active parents the ones who are most likely to push the school district to do better. So right. I'm not saying this is a solution. I'm saying this is an indication right. of right. how much people want and how we would be able. Sure, they're more expensive, but they, they produce. They have smaller classes. Uh, they have uh, better prepared teachers, and you know, on and on and on. Mm -hmm. the, other, the other experiment that shows the same kinds of things is um, programs that help city kids go to uh, good suburban schools. Those programs exist in cities all over the country, and they are always oversubscribed. The waiting list is longer than the number of students they can let in, and if they let more in, the waiting list would be even longer. 
you know, people got the idea, oh, this is a possibility. Mm-hmm. Those kids, of course, go through really um, big dislocations. They've got to get up earlier. They've got to get right. on the bus. They've got to be taken out to the suburb on the bus. Then when they get to the suburban school, they're just marked. You know, they're different. Right. Um, it generally, they're black and Hispanic, possibly some other ethnic immigrant population compared to the white suburbanites. Nevertheless, these programs work. They work remarkably well. And what it shows is two things. One, uh, good schools actually teach. <laughs> it's a nice thing to know. The second is everybody wants to go to them. Right. They all want good schools. They just can't manage to get them in. In the movie Waiting for Superman, which is this um, movie intended to be pro-charter school. Yeah. It's a pro- it takes yeah. place in New Jersey yeah. with Chris Christie and all the rest, the pro-charter school movement. There's a horrific set of scenes that take place in a large auditorium where all the potential kids who have entered the lottery to get into the charter school are gathered along with their mothers, their fathers, their sisters, their brothers, their aunts, their uncles. So it's this packed auditorium with people who are extremely eager, hoping they'll win the lottery. But of course, most of them lose. Right. Because there aren't enough places. Now, there what you're getting is a whole bunch of things. First of all, you're getting evidence that some particular charter school, and in these cases, these are charter schools that are heavily subsidized by big money from Wall Street. Yeah, lots of hedge funders like... Billionaires. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So they got a lot of money for these schools. So with a lot of money, they can have small classes, they can have long school days, they can have visits to home. They can do all the things that any good school should do, and most good schools do do, but most city schools can't do because they don't have enough money. And so everybody wants, everybody, everybody wants to get into this school, and what the movie shows unintentionally is that for most of the people there, it's just a shame, yeah. disaster. They don't get their kids into the school. What do they do then? You know, they yeah. just, they don't know what to do. And they can't afford to move out to a suburb where the school is good. Right. What they don't have is enough money to support schools. American schools are supported primarily, largely, by funds raised locally through the property tax. That, again, it's the only place in the world, as far as I know, that this happens. Right. It supports the inequality that we complain about. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it's again, one of these vicious circles. You live in a poor area. You don't have enough money for the school. So the school can't support you well enough, can't teach enough, so you end up being poor when you're done. It's time for another break. You're listening to Detroit, Lift Up Your Weary Head by Sufjan Stevens. More interchange after this.
Welcome back to Interchange, scapegoating our cities. I'm Doug Storm. Tonight we're speaking with Bill Goldsmith, Professor Emeritus at Cornell and author of Saving Our Cities, a progressive plan to transform urban America. In our final segment, we continue our discussion of how America tightened the noose around cities through policies built on inequality, especially regarding schools. Finally, Goldsmith leads us through the gloom to a few hopeful examples of reform and the concept of the Brandeis tipping point, which is where a real reform movement could, maybe, begin. I always want to imagine a city being a place where there is the possibility of this neighborliness. You know, it's part of the the idea of being next to people, having to live next to them or liking to live next to them. I'm not sure. I'm from the country myself, so I'm always a little bit out of my element if I go into cities because it's just foreign to me. Um, the pace is foreign to me. The, the sounds are foreign to me. And it, it is a very different kind of place. But uh, you are right up next to people. So there is this sense to me that you have so many people in one place means you might be able to actually make a difference. You might be able to actually get people together if you didn't have to fight these external forces you're talking about. Well, that's, that's my claim. Right. That's why right. I'm trying to talk people who do urban studies, people who are involved in city planning to look outward and see the damages that are coming from the outside All right. and try to change the system that, that does it. You know, um, it was years ago in the 1970s when Justice Thurgood Marshall in the Supreme Court wrote a stinging defense against the Detroit um, uh, case that ruled that um, the school integration laws from the Warren Court did not apply between or among school districts, only within them. Mm. So there were 53 mm. suburban school districts and the city of Detroit who had agreed to come together uh, and form a single area in which all the kids got mixed. The Supreme Court said, nope, this law only applies within school districts. The same thing with the Boston School Committee hmm. uh, earlier, uh, where, you know, what happened was essentially uh, the suburbs ringed the cities. This is this white noose, and they pulled it tight, and they said, no, you got to solve your own problems. Bus among your own 
own schools. Right. It didn't do very much good. So in Boston, you're busing poor black kids um, to uh, share schools with poor Southie kids, mm-hmm. Irish poor kids. Well, you know, all they did was fight. Right. It didn't work. Uh, and anybody with half a brain could have predicted it wouldn't work. And one might say, which you were sort of there. <laughs> Maybe nobody intended it to work. That's my position on all these things, to be honest with you. It, yeah, it's hard not to think that. And and I don't know why I should think that. You know, I, I've come to the point now where I need just to say it. I don't I don't feel good intentions anywhere <laughs> anymore. I think these are designed, and I think people choose to do this to, yeah. to populations. I don't see any way to think otherwise. Well, two economists, Sam Bowles and Herb Gindest, years ago wrote a book called Schooling in Capitalist America, hmm. where they assert, and they provide a great deal of evidence, and it's a very uh, attractive, if miserable, idea that schools are not intended to help everybody. They're intended to produce a few winners and larger number of losers. Because yeah. if we didn't do that, we couldn't staff all the jobs that we have to fill. Right. That's a horrible idea. There are countries that approach it differently, but I think in the United States that actually comes quite close. Nobody yeah. intends to create a school to produce losers. <laughs> they don't claim that. They just say we set up the structure so it guarantees that. Right. So if you look at, for example, class size, which is a, a principal determinant of success of school children. Right. Well, you need money to have small class sizes. Yep. And every single person in the White House, in the cabinet, who deals with school issues sends their children to small, special of course, of course. Typically private schools, and most of those people themselves, including President Obama, who went to Puno mm-hmm. in Honolulu, went to elite small numbers of students in of course. Egypt from very highly trained teacher schools. I'm Doug Storm, and you're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Scapegoating Our Cities with Bill Goldsmith, Professor Emeritus of City and Regional Planning at Cornell University. Right, so you have uh, you have this understanding, and you want to say, well, okay, we have uh, populations uh, again of people close together. There are lots of them. Now we need to figure out a way to. Uh, I don't know what to fight. You know how how you're uh, proposing we fight. Uh, or have these defensive reforms, or how we stop these particular things that are coming from the very uh, people who are governing us and who go to the private schools and who have the money and then go on to legislate and go on to continue to do these things. How is it that we are able to work in this particular system? One thing I want to point out before I lose you, I know we're going to run short on time here, is that you point out that of the, what is it, 30 largest cities or metropolises or however you say it, I think cities actually in in the country, that only uh, four of them have Republican mayors. Oh, yeah. No, see, one of my hopes is is that um, the one place where progressives, not all Democrats are progressive, but on average they're much more progressive than the average Republican. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, we have a Republican Congress, we have a Republican Senate, we have well, we will now have a Republican um, President, we have a Republican Supreme Court. That's not true in cities. We have Republican governors. Republican governors. Yes, right. And Republican state house, uh, right. state legislatures. State legislatures, right. But uh, cities, though. a few exceptions. Yeah. But, but cities are governed uh, and have been governed for quite a while by quite progressive um, mayors mm-hmm. and largely Democrats. And I think that maybe that's going to continue to be true. This is one of the reasons I'm saying we, if we're going to
going to have these big social changes, they should start by organizations in the cities, and I'm saying the cities should spend most attention on these four areas, food, schools, drug war, and, and austerity, all of which are sort of imposed on the outside. Let, let me give one school example. Yeah. The Wake County School District, which is centered in Raleigh, North Carolina, in the year 2000, uh, the district shifted from what was a court-ordered, Supreme Court-ordered, and by now, of course, historic agenda of racial integration to economic integration. Now, they anticipated constitutional objections of the Supreme Court to race-based decision-making, mm-hmm. uh, but also they had a lot of research uh, evidence that uh, confirmed that educational benefits came from mixing income. And one Raleigh school board member and education researchers said this. He said, disadvantaged students do much better, and advantaged students are not hurt if you avoid concentrating low-achievement students. So their goal was to have no school uh, with more than 40% of its student body poor, uh, you know, by official statistics. And as a result of the program, it worked. And this incorporated the city of Raleigh with its sprawling suburbs. You know, Raleigh's not a very big city. Mm-hmm. It's the 21st largest school district in the United States. Hmm. Um, 130,000 students, more than 140 schools, 46 of them operated year-round. In spite of these efforts, more than 97% of their kids either attend a neighborhood school within five miles of home or a magnet school Hmm. or some other school by their own choice. So only 3,000 kids, that's out of 130,000, who were mainly poor kids bused from the city to the suburbs, took involuntary placements. Okay, so it really worked. Hmm. Most of the district's poor kids were African-American and Hispanic. Uh, Let's see, in 1995, 40% of the black kids met state requirements in grade 3 through 8. After the program, it integrated the schools economically, not racially, but economically. 91% met the requirement. Hmm. So more than doubled the kids doing well. Uh, And the results were similar for Latinos. So it was really fabulous. It was really successful. But then... That good news displeased some people. In 2010, Tea Party Republicans gained a majority on that county school board, and they pushed an ideological agenda. Mm. And they wanted what they called the death knell of government-sponsored integration. Ah. You know, the new word in some states, the United States, they don't call them public schools anymore. You know what they call them? Mm-mm. Government schools. Really? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Nice. I love how that works. Yeah, that's, it's really terrifying. So the new school board chairman, the Tea Party guy, mm-hmm. responded to critics who pointed out that poor children will once again, as they were before, be concentrated in high-poverty schools. Right. He said, no, 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 but that makes a lot of sense, this de facto segregation by income and race. He said this, if we had a school that was like 80% poverty, the public would see the challenges, the need to make it successful. Right now, we've diluted the problem so we can ignore it. <laughs> You know, this is these are these are tough issues. Oh. The Supreme Court, the Roberts Court, has been terrible on these kinds of. Well, things. shocking there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. But it's it really is um, it really is scary uh, to think about the willingness of the public to throw away what was a piece of American pride mm-hmm. didn't ever quite meet our promise, but of having public schools that served everyone and that produced the citizenry. Yeah. Uh, that was uh, literate uh, and and had some historical knowledge. No, we just don't we don't have that. There are examples of, of nations that do do this, um, so it can be done. And what I'm saying is that 
cities are going to have to fight this battle uh, by pushing and pushing and pushing, and I think there's some hope they can do it. So there is history there of uh, a successful reform. Oh, yeah. So that's yeah. good to hear, and uh, it's it's hard to hear about those things since we don't often hear about much other than grit and resilience anymore, so it's good to know that uh, there is an example out there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Actually, there, there are lots of examples good. of good things being done. And, uh, by the way, the Supreme Courts of states, justices have excoriated state leaders for not equalizing spending among school districts. Hmm. You know, the state constitution invariably says you have to provide a decent education to every kid in the state, something like that. Mm -hmm. And then somebody brings a lawsuit and says, hey, they're not doing it. It's not equal. And then the state Supreme Court judges, the top court judges, read what's going on. And the, the judgments they make just make your ears red. I mean, they're unbelievable how angry they get. But there's not a lot they can do. I mean, they don't, they're not going to put school board members or superintendents, state superintendents of school in prison. Uh, so there's not much else they can do. Hmm, right. Well, uh, before we close here, can you tell me, are we at that Brandeis tipping point? You want to tell me what a Brandeis tipping point is and then tell me if we're at it? <laughs> well, you know, I think we're getting close. The Brandeis tipping point is when the ratio of uh, incomes of the rich to others become so unbalanced that they uh, make it impossible to um, to pass laws to equalize things. So there's two guys, are professors of law and economics at Berkeley and Harvard, uh, named Ayers and Edlin, who invented something called the Brandeis Ratio or the Brandeis Quotient. They divide the average income of the top 1%, the average income of the, of the really rich, not the really, really rich, but the really rich, right. by the median income. And the higher the ratio, they say, the more distant is democracy. Right. Now, in 1980, the ratio was 12 and a half. Too high already. Already higher than it had right. been. A quarter right. century later, in 2006, it had tripled to 36. Yeah, yeah. So what these two scholars say is that Brandeis lived at a time when enormous disparities between the rich and the poor led to violent labor unrest and ultimately to a reform movement. Now, they say that today, and I believe... We approach another Brandeis tipping point. I think we hit it with this election. Yeah, I think um, you might be right. Yeah, so uh, clearly that's one of the driving forces on Tuesday. They voted for the bad alternative, um, who is likely to make things even worse. So it seems like we may we may move in that direction. The history of the world isn't um, optimistic about what happens when things get really bad, uh, but certainly the, the New Deal right. uh, is a good sample of of good things that can happen yeah. things get bad. So I'm hoping, um, <laughs> I don't know what we're going to do. <laughs> well, first got to hope the tipping point tips over and things get bad in a way that you really don't want that to happen, but at the same time, you don't know how it's going to change otherwise. Well, I think they're going to get worse with Supreme Court appointments. Yes. Oh, my gosh, yes. Let's, let's leave that for another day. It's terrifying, and that's what's going to be a problem for our children and grandchildren. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Yes. Well, thanks, Bill Goldsmith, the author of Saving Our Cities, A Progressive Plan to Transform Urban America. Thanks for joining me on Interchange. Thank you. That's our show. Thanks to Bill Goldsmith for sharing his wisdom on the role that cities could play in revitalizing our economy and our democracy. You're listening to Living for the City by Stevie Wonder. Next time on Interchange, 
the wages of whiteness. W.E.B. Du Bois used this phrase in his 1935 masterpiece of sociology, Black Reconstruction, to describe the bad deal made between the Southern plantocracy and white workers, social benefits and political access, in exchange for allegiance to the white ruling class in the aftermath of the U.S. Civil War and official emancipation. He reminds us that for a brief moment in the sun, African Americans began their climb to freedom, only to be pushed back toward slavery by the forces of capitalism and racism. Bill Mullen, professor of English and American Studies at Purdue University, joins us to talk about this extraordinarily prolific revolutionary across the color line, W.E.B. Du Bois. The Wages of Whiteness, W.E.B. Du Bois and the Color Line, next time on Interchange, Tuesdays at 6 p.m. on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produce Interchange. Assistant producer is Rob Schoon. Jennifer Brooks is our board engineer. And our executive producer is Joe Crawford. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie coming up next, right here on your community radio station, WFHB.